It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, we'll do more of our Q&A uh, today. I do have this up here, which is nothing. It's just a white screen. Uh, but that's just in case we need to draw something. So that's I always like doing that in case it's helpful for visuals and things like that. So I don't know if we'll ever get to that. But uh, we will uh, cover at least a Q&A question this morning. But before we do so, let's start with a word of prayer and kick off this uh, Lord's Day in prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we are here for your glory and for your honor. And as the body of Christ, we come with various gifts that you have given to us, each member according to the proportion that you have given, and we are here to serve you. Uh, uh, you are not the one that's going to be putting on the display today. We are here to glorify you. You have already displayed yourself to us in creation and in salvation. We are here now to worship you. And so, Lord, we pray that we would do so with hearts that are full of joy and full of gratitude for what you've done to uh, done for us through Jesus Christ. And we thank you so much for the opportunity and privilege that we have to gather here this morning for that purpose. We do pray for Pastor Steve as he um, will be teaching this morning preaching this morning from the Word of God. And so, Lord, we just pray that you give him strength and give his voice um, the clarity that it needs to be able to preach your Word uh, with precision and with the clarity uh, necessary. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're going to be covering another Q&A question. And the question that I chose for us this morning is this. Since we are born with a sin nature and are at war with God from the beginning, how are babies or children saved if they die before the age of accountability? So we'll be talking today about infant salvation. Uh, We will try to address the issue of infant salvation. This is a very difficult uh, subject. And I have a friend uh, that's become a very dear friend to me very quickly, uh, which probably almost none of you would know. He was a former online student of mine that took my Romans class uh, a couple years ago. I think it was a couple years ago. And he has begun to compile. He's, a, he's one of the brightest guys I've met. Um, and just even just for his age, he's just, um, he, he is learning the word of God at a quick rate. He's going to seminary right now at the Master Seminary. And he has compiled together a, or beginning to compile a systematic theology just himself. He's just creating one. Like, wow, that's nobody does that unless you know you're a genius. And so he's been working on that. And uh, he sent me one of the excerpts articles, and it was on infant salvation. And it is the best thing I've read on infant salvation. Uh, he does an excellent job of research, not just of other resources, but he studies into the text and addresses all of the texts that I know of on this issue. And so I just highly commend his work. In fact, I so much did so that I'm like, I can't, if I address anything, he will have already covered it in his, his material. And so I asked him yesterday, and thankfully he got back with me this morning, and I asked him permission to be like, hey, can I use a lot of your stuff, cite your stuff? So a lot of the stuff that you're going to be hearing today is not just because I went in and dug into the text, although um, I have cross-checked that work, uh, but 
this is a lot of his work. And so I'm just up front going to tell you this is um, what he has uh, compiled together in a kind of almost like a systematic theology, almost like a bullet point kind of a thing. Um, I have encouraged him to publish this work at some point whenever he gets a chance, whenever his life is not drowning in seminary work and things like that. So uh, especially on this topic on infant salvation, because it's just really well done and it's thought through from a variety of angles. And there are a variety of angles that we must approach when we come to this topic. Um, his name is uh, Colin Vasolo, if I didn't already mention his name. Again, he was a former student of mine. Um, and one of the things that we want to do is expand this concept that goes beyond just infants, but also to the mentally disabled. So when you're thinking about this, if I don't say it every time, think this will apply also to those who are mentally disabled, to those who have no ability to understand spiritual truths in the way that we understand them. Uh, and so that's, I just want to make sure that you're thinking along those lines with me as well. The first thing that we must humbly admit when we come to Scripture is that there is no explicit mention in Scripture of what the eternal destiny of infants is. Uh, we just don't have an explicit, explicit statement that actually uh, communicates that to us. And we so wish that we did. I think that you can resonate with me on that. Wish there was just that one verse that just says, you know, if an infant dies before the age of accountability or, or however we would define that, they are ushered into the presence of the Lord. That's what we want the scriptures to say, but it doesn't say that. Colin did a great job thinking this through, and he offers an idea for why that might be the case, why it's not mentioned in scripture. And you might have already thought about this before. The temptation even as believers, for infanticide, right? Because if you know that the child may not live because of some health issue, you might be tempted to usher them quickly, almost like a euthanasia, into the presence of God. Because you know that with certainty. that they, If the scripture said that they go to heaven, you know that with certainty, then there would be a lot of people that would be using that excuse uh, that's an excellent point, I think. Uh, and so what it does is it requires us to dig into Scripture for those who are seeking and seeking and seeking. What is the answer to this? Uh, because we don't know, and we're kind of left hanging, at least on the surface. And I, I think what's really cool is I think that what, what God has designed this to be is that those who seek and seek and seek for this answer, they begin to discover not necessarily the explicit statement, right? but they discover the compassion and the mercy of God. That's what they see over and over again as they approach this subject. We need to start with a very foundational point, and we need to start with the sin and the sin nature. Turn your Bibles over to uh, Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Sin and sin nature. Up front, we're going to, need, going to need to say and admit that infants and the mentally disabled are born in sin. They are born in sin. Psalm 51. Looking at verse 5 specifically. Behold, iniquity I was brought forth, and in sin my mother 
conceived me. We see that very clearly in the text. In Psalm 58, it might be just a couple pages over for you. Psalm 58, verse 4. Excuse me, verse 3. It says, literally, the wicked are scattered from the womb. They wander, in other words. They err from birth. Those who are speaking falsehood. Those who speak falsehood, they wander, they err. In other words, from the very moment that they are literally coming out of the womb, they are, we already see the evidence of sin. We already see that. This is called sin nature. And if you've been in BTI and you've been studying the theological sections of BTI, you'll see this in uh, commentaries and you'll see this in uh, like the biblical doctrine book. This is a term that theologians call a sin nature. And it's well established in Scripture, although many people uh, want to... They don't like that idea because that kind of seems like, well, everyone's just kind of relegated to a sin nature and they couldn't help it. Uh, so a lot of people try to find other explanations for this, but it is fairly well established in Scripture. And no better is that found than in Romans chapter 5. So turn your Bibles over to Romans chapter 5. And this is one of the most complicated passages in all of Scripture and most hotly debated passages. But there are some really key phrases and terms in this text that we should look at here, especially as it relates to infants. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It's really interesting. He says, For this reason, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, also in this way death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in, up until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not accredited when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam all the way until Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type, and that's just a term that really means copy. He is really a copy of the one who is to come. This is really interesting um, because in chapter 5, verse 12, specifically, verse 12 here, it says, All die, this is at the end of the verse, all, death spreads to all men, all die, because why? Because all sin, yeah, all sinned, right? Now, I talked about this at the Grace Theological Academy, so I don't want to bore you with technical details again. But we have to get into this a little bit because it can be misunderstood. And it is the fact that these two verbs that are used here in this phrase, sin spread to all men, right? Passed through to all men because all sinned. Those are in the aorist tense. A-O-R-I-S-T, aorist tense. And generally speaking, you, you typically hear the aorist tense as, well, that's the past tense. Well, that's an English way of looking at aorist tense, but that's not how aorist tense typically operates in Greek. That's not the default way that it operates. Because when you're dealing with axiomatic statements, statements that are like in principle, that apply to a, a general group of people that are said kind of more, not in real space and time, but more spoken theoretically, or 
maybe not even theoretically, it's just the fact that it's in principle, it's axiomatic. It takes on what's called a gnomic idea. And you're like, I don't even know how to spell gnomic. How do we, you know, what, what do I even do with that term? Well, no, okay, gnomic is spelled G-N-O-M-I-C. It's not even what you would expect. But the idea behind that is that this is something that is axiomatic. It's something that happens, right? Yes, that means that when it's applied to someone, it will happen. It did happen in the past to people who to whom it applied but when speaking axiomatically with the aorist tense this is what happens so your translation may say something like so death spread past tense to all men because all sinned but i really argue really hard on this text that technically the best way to translate this verse the second half of the verse specifically is that it should say, in this way, death spreads to all people because all sin. You hear that? You hear the axiomatic concept there? This is a principle that's, that's true for all of creation. Whether it's what? Past, present, or future. Because if you just do past, then you're just thinking about people in the past. But what this is, is this is a principle that applies to past, present, and future. It is not bound by time. That's really important. And in case, and I feel like I need to to show this, but in case that's hard for you to grasp, this occurs in other passages, and your translation will agree. Okay, Turn your Bible over to 2 Timothy. You can keep your finger here, though. Don't lose track of this. We'll come back here. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. You wouldn't even be able to tell it's an aorist tense because it's not even translated like this in your text. Well, it may be, but it would kind of be weird. Anyways, okay. I doubt it. 2 Timothy 2.19, Now the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knew those who are His. Is that what it says? It says knows. That's an aorist tense. I thought aorist tense was always past tense. It's not. Why? Because this is a what? An axiomatic statement. It's, God is so faithful to it, it's axiomatic and applies to all time. Right? Alright? Another example is in Matthew 3. Turn back, turn back. Again, finger in Romans 5. It's kind of like a reminder for me, really. Don't forget. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17 And behold, this is Jesus' baptism, a voice from heaven saying, a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I was well pleased. Is that what it says? No, but it's an aorist. That's because this is something that's axiomatic, that's always been true and always what? Will be true. Right? Right? And this also helps with difficult passages. I brought this up at the Grace Theological Academy as well. But Romans 8, the golden chain of redemption. Your translation typically says, those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he what? Glorified. And it kind of creates this awkward theology. Like, well, it's kind of like a future thing, right? Like, somehow they are glorified and it's so sure that it's going to happen in the future. I mean, I guess you could go that way, but it's just really straining the text. What are these? 
These are axiomatic statements, right? This is what God does for everyone. What? Anyone who is his, who is past, present, or future. Those whom he calls, he justifies. And those whom he justifies, he what? Glorifies. See that? It's axiomatic. Okay? 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. You don't need to turn there, but this even helps to explain why they, these false teachers deny the master who bought them. That's a str- that's, people struggle with that one. How did Jesus buy them and redeem them if they deny him? How is that possible? And they're false teachers. Because it's in the aorist tense, and this is what... This is describing who Jesus is and what he does for people, but it doesn't necessarily apply specifically to them. It's describing who he is. He is the master who buys them. He is the only one who is their buyer, but he does not buy them specifically. And I could go more into that. It helps really resolve 1 Timothy 2 and 1 John 2 and so forth. But returning back to Romans 5 specifically... Going back here. If we take these as a past tense, death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay? If that's true, then sin technically needs to be committed in real space and time for people to die, according to that logic. Does that make sense? Right? You'd have to actually sin in real space and time. Uh, in order for you to die, according to that statement. But if we understand this as the gnomic era, so this is more axiomatic, okay? This is a principle that applies to all. Then it's really cutting to the idea of man's nature. You can hear that in the terminology. This is man's nature. This is his principle to sin, Death spreads to all men. Why? Because all what? Sin. So whether you've even had, as an infant, an opportunity to actually sin in real space and time or not, it's still what? Death still applies to you. Because of the sin principle. The sin nature. That's what I would argue is going on here in Romans 5 specifically. Um, now, the sin principle is not excluding people who actually sin in real space and time, just to be clear. It does include them, right? But it also now is including all of those who have never even been able to commit an actual real space and time sin, where their, their thoughts are not even formulated, perhaps even in the womb. Right? There's just not an, an intentional pursuit of doing anything at that point, yet they are still born in sin. Okay? So this is nature language, and um, it's not just actions in real space and time. Uh, this is what we would call the sin nature. So, bringing that all together, infants and the mentally disabled, we would argue, have a sin nature And therefore, this is a really important term, and I'm going to splice this out carefully, and Colin did such a good job on this. Uh, Therefore, they are technically guilty and culpable because of the sin nature. Even their death proves this. But, here's the question. 
and I just tried to word this as carefully as I could. Will God hold infants and the mentally disabled? Will he hold them accountable to their culpability? That's the question. Is he going to hold them accountable to their culpability? Or is there warrant for mercy given their lack of consciousness of their rebellion or their lack of ability to receive the grace of God by faith? That's the question that we have to answer. All right, let's close in prayer. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you're like, no! You've got me on the edge of your, my seat here. Um, let me start by just kind of giving just a general answer here uh, and talk about it this way. One, culpability, we're going to associate culpability with the sin nature. They're culpable because they what? They have a sin nature, right? But I'm going to argue for the fact that holding them accountable is going to apply specifically to actual sins in real space and time. Okay, that technically no one is actually held accountable just because they have a sin nature. Just because they have a sin nature. They're not held accountable. They are accountable. I mean, they are culpable, but they're not held accountable. Uh, In other words, um, they committed sins with knowledge of good and evil. And I'm going to splice this out a little bit, and I realize that this can be a little bit of a touchy situation and very difficult to, to mine through, but bear with me and see if you can follow along here with, with what I'm going to talk about. Um, one thing that Colin did a great job arguing for is that if infants are actually shown mercy from God, they're actually shown mercy from God, it cannot be because of moral neutrality. We just argued for this, right? Because they have culpability. So the mercy from God cannot be, well, you don't really deserve this, right? That's That's not where we need to land because they actually have a sin nature. Infant salvation can then only be predicated on the fact that God is merciful. That God is merciful. And Colin mentions three categories of evidence for this. And I'm going to walk through this with you. But the first category is Christ's attitude toward infants. That's number one. Christ's attitude toward infants. I'll actually put this out. This take a little bit for us to get through. Nope. No, I'm not, apparently. Okay. Great. Let's come back here and see if this will work. Uh, nope, it doesn't like to do that. Drawing. You can do it. You can do it. Okay, let's see. Pen. One. Okay, there we go. Um, Christ's attitude. Or, or disposition to infants. Okay. Number two is favorable instances of infants who die. So this would be like example texts. Okay. Examples in Scripture of this happening. And then number three is the principle of ignorance. Specifically of rebellion, ignorance of their rebellion, and... Uh, you could say maybe spiritual realities. Sorry if the 
reality. Sorry if the penmanship is a little bit off. Um, that's working with a, a Microsoft Surface Pro. That's why. All right. That's fun. Christ's attitude toward infants. Um, turn your Bibles over to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verse 14. Uh, Let's look at verse 13, actually. Then they brought to him children. Pideon in Greek. Um, It can apply to all different kinds of a range of ages, and we'll see that in a moment. So that he should lay hands on them. And that he would pray, presumably about concerning them. And the disciples, they rebuked them for doing this. But Jesus said to them, Permit the children and do not forbid them to come to me, for of such ones is the kingdom of heaven. And then placing his hands upon them, he went from there. Uh, they brought to him children. Now, it's interesting because we don't have any specificity. It could be like the whole range of children. It could be like, maybe they're four years old. Maybe they're two years old. Maybe they're infants. How do we know? It's really cool. Luke, he's a doctor, right? He gives a lot of details in his gospel. He brings clarity to this text. So turn your Bibles over to Luke. Luke chapter 18. I love this. I love the harmony of Scripture because it works. You can use the word paideon if you want for child because it kind of applies to all ages. Or you can be like Luke and give us specificity to who this is. Luke 18, let's back up to verse 15. Now they were bringing to him even, what does your text say? Infants. Yeah, it's a totally different word. Brephos in Greek. They were bringing to him infants so that he should touch them. But his disciples, seeing this, they were rebuking them. But Jesus summoned them, saying, Permit the children. And he uses the paideon there. Isn't that interesting? He uses both terms, infants and paideon. It just really reinforces the fact that you can go interchangeably here. But the point is, is that what kind of paideon are these? These are infants. And notice, they have to be Carrying them, right? To Jesus. Do not forbid them, for of such ones as these is the kingdom of God. That's important. That's important. We know much better what the age of these children relatively are. The kingdom belongs to those like these infants. And a lot of people have argued... That that is, well, evidence for the fact that infants then go to heaven. And I would, too, argue that. But some have made an interesting counter. Technically, the context is about this is the quality of those who believe in Christ, and they need to model behavior like children. So it's not a commentary on the children as much as it's a commentary on us who believe who should be like children. Right? Is that what this text is really talking about. Is it really saying that babies, infants, go to heaven? But 
like Colin mentions in his um, article, that creates kind of a false dichotomy because children are also modeling that behavior. Does that make sense? So if those who model that behavior get to, you know, that's who the kingdom of heaven belongs to, then doesn't that also still belong to infants because they're modeling that behavior? Does that make sense? Also, Christ laid his hands on them, and in the Mark passage, it says he blessed them, and it uses the imperfect tense. So, he was blessing them. He was blessing them. Why would Christ do that to infants who would be currently under condemnation? It's hard to reconcile those two details. And so I would argue that this is an implicit commentary on the disposition that God has toward infants at this age. Okay? Make sense? All right. That's, that's Christ's attitude toward infants. That's Matthew nineteen fourteen. And Mark ten sixteen. These are the parallel passages, and then Luke eighteen verse sixteen. Okay, those are those three passages. Now there are other passages I, I think that Colin may have brought up, but that's the one that we have time for, and that's the primary one. Let's move on to the favorable instances of infants who die. Basically, example texts. And he brought up a couple of them, but one I want to center on specifically, and one that you're probably very familiar with if you've ever heard someone talk about infant salvation, and it's in 2 Samuel chapter 12. So let's turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is after Nathan the prophet comes to David with this really clever um, story <laughs> of that totally makes David fall into a trap. So he's like, condemn that man for stealing away the, uh, the lamb who had so many other lambs. And then Nathan's like, you are the man. And he's like, ah, you're right. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned before Yahweh. The word is before Yahweh is technically the same word that he uses in Psalm 51 against, against Yahweh, but I tend to take this as before Yahweh, in the presence of Yahweh, because when he says in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned, well, that's technically not true, because he's actually sinned against other people as well. I mean, Uriah, number one, right? Uh, This is technically, he did this in secret. Nobody knew. He did this, he sinned before Yahweh and Yahweh alone. He covered it up. And so I think that that's what's going on here. I sinned before Yahweh. I sinned before him. And before him alone. Uh, And nobody knew. And Nathan had to have a miraculous speaking, uh, uh, a miraculous word given to him so that he would actually communicate this to David. So then Nathan said to David... Look at this. Yahweh has also made, literally says, made pass over your sin. He has forgiven your sin. You, David, will not die. You won't die. But then the text is interesting. The LSB, I think, takes it as however here. Um, You could take this as like, but that's literally, he's just saying nothing. 
Nothing. That's nothing. Because there's something else here that still needs to be held accountable. Because you've certainly made the enemies of Yahweh blaspheme my name. In other words, you've made them blaspheme or made them spurn me, revile me because of this matter. Now think about the context of that. Why were the enemies blaspheming God? This actually connects perfectly to Isaiah 52 and Romans 2 that we talked about a few weeks ago or a month ago. I don't remember when it was. Uh, and the connection here that the name of God is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Well, think about the context. David sent out his army. Uriah was part of that army. And then he has Uriah and a few men go into an impossible situation and they die. And then the enemies are like, hey, we killed them, which means that your God was not, what, able to save them. So they are mocking God. So God is saying, this David, I am going to hold this uh, to your feet. You are going to experience consequences even though your sin is forgiven and you won't die, though you deserve to die. You will still experience the consequences for this action. So, the Lord says, even the son, the child, which belongs to you, he shall surely die because of this. In other words, David, you took one of my servants, Uriah. So I'm going to take one of yours. That's what's going on. So then it says, Nathan went to his house, and then Yahweh struck the child, which the wife of Uriah bore for David, and he became very sick. And so then David sought God for the child's sake, and then David fasted, and he came and he, literally it says he lodged and he lied down on the ground, and the elders of his house, they rose up, uh, they, they rose up to him, and they wanted to raise him up from the ground, but he did not consent, and he did not eat anything with them. He ate no bread, he ate no food. And then it says, on the seventh day. Now, what, what would the seventh day be? The seventh day with respect to probably what? The birth of the child. Does that make sense? Right? Isn't that cool? We actually know the age of this child. This is we're not even speculating as to we have the precise day as to how old this child is. So this is helpful for us in this context that we're speaking about infant salvation. So on the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David they were afraid to tell it to him because that, that the child had died because they said, Well, look, behold, when the child was alive, we spoke to him and he didn't even listen to our voice then. So how shall we say to him that the child has died and then he might do harm? He might do evil and presumably to himself. He might do evil to himself or to someone, I don't know, someone else perhaps. He might become insane because of the news. But then David, it's really interesting, David is actually watching all of this and he saw that his servants were whispering to one another about this news. And so then David understood that the child has died, and that he had died. And so then David said to his servants, has the child died? And they said, yeah, he's died. And then David, this is what's so interesting, David rose up from the ground, and he washed himself, and then he anointed himself, and he changed his garments, or he changed his clothes, probably putting on more 
the regal garments now and taking off the mourning garments. And he came into the house of Yahweh and he worshipped there. It's interesting, he went there first before he ate anything. He needed food at that point, but he went to worship first. And then he came to his house and then he asked and so they went ahead and set there for him bread and he ate the bread and he ate the food. And then his servant said to him, well, so what is this thing? Why have you done it this way? Uh, you fasted while the, for the sake of the child while he was alive and you wept for him. And, but when the child died, you rose up, you began eating food. And then he said, David said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. For I said, I would assume for it to himself, who knows, maybe Yahweh will be gracious to who? To me. This is a really important point. And the child may live. But now he has died. Why am I still fasting? Am I able to bring him back again? No, can't. I am going to him, but he will not return to me. And there's the phrase that you may have heard before. I am going to him. Now, I've heard this phrase used. I remember even being in a class at Masters. I had a professor that was like, technically, it doesn't say that he's going to go and meet him in heaven. And that's technically true. It says, I'm going to him, which often in the Old Testament, when somebody goes with someone else to the grave, they just meet each other in the grave and they both die. So they're both dying in the grave. So it's like, well, maybe that's what's going on here. But I think that our careful look into this text shows something quite different than that. Because uh, the, the, it may not be explicitly stated, but the implication is pretty clear, I think. Let me back up a little bit before we kind of come back to this phrasing here. In verse 13 and 14, we notice that David's sin is forgiven. So the death of the child is not related to that, right? We talked about that already. It's related to the spurning uh, that the enemies of Yahweh will do to spurn Yahweh. And then I parked there at verse 22. Who knows? Yahweh may be gracious to me. Now, if David is very much interested in the eternal salvation or is concerned that the child may not be eternally saved, what should he have said at that point? Who knows? Yahweh may be gracious to who? To him. To the child. That's not what he says. The only thing that David is concerned about that even troubles him is keeping the child to be with him for his own blessing, for his own benefit. David is also able to move on quite immediately from this. I think if he was concerned with the eternal salvation of his child as though he's not saved because he's an infant, then I think that that would be very troubling to him. Uh... And David's fasting and weeping, we we see this clearly in the text, was for the life of the child to be with him, specifically with him. But after he dies, he knows that he can't bring him back, so he has no concern for the final destiny of the child. Uh, 
Also, David's consolation after the child's death speaks to David's hope. So he's he just he comes across with this attitude of comfort that it's okay. It's it's it the matter is okay and it's in the hands of the Lord now. And again, he doesn't say where the child is, but he's also not mourning for the sake of the child's soul. It's almost like that's not even in play in his thinking. I mean, even the fact that David wishes that the child could return to him, and the whole implication is that there would be joy at their reunion together, that that they would somehow the child and, and he could grow up together and that would benefit David, that would there would be joy there, but uh, now he realizes only I can go to him now. He can't come back to me. And the implication there again is when I go to him, that's when the joy of the reunion will happen. Yes? But here's something that's really important, and I really appreciate that Colin brought this out. And it's almost like an obvious thing once you think about it, and I don't know why I never really thought about it, or at least thought about it uh, in any serious way. But Consider this in contrast to the response that David has when Absalom, his son, dies. It's very, very different, isn't it? It's extremely different. Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. He repeats it over and over again to the point where he can't even lead Israel anymore. And his commander has to come to him and say, Wake up, you have to move on. You have to move on. Yes, we know that you have a heart for your son, but you have to lead this people too. David does not have nearly the same kind of assurance for Absalom as he does for this little baby, this little infant who died. And I think this is another overlooked thing, but look at verse 24. Then David, what? Comforted Bathsheba. His wife. If you've had to go through the difficult situation of losing a child or going through a miscarriage, what is the number one thing that the mother wants to know? It's that the child is okay. It's okay. The child's okay. I don't know how else David could comfort his wife except with that kind of knowledge. Or that kind of hope. Maybe not fully understood at that point, but that kind of hope. And then finally, Solomon is born. Solomon is born uh, in verse 24, the second half there. And notice at the end, what does it say that Yahweh, how does Yahweh think about Solomon? He loves him. He loves him. Maybe... I may argue that the, the loving is put there in contrast to the child. Not that Yahweh hated the child <laughs> that died. That's not what's going on. But love-hate is kind of more of like how sometimes is expressed by how someone was treated. It makes it seem as though, well, he was hated because he died. He, he lived, so he was loved. That sometimes is the way that love and hate are used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Uh, 
for instance, you shall hate your father and mother and so forth. It's, it's not because you actually hate them and you're, you know, like internally. It's that this is how you have to treat them when in contrast to how you need to treat the Lord ultimately. That's kind of, I think, maybe what's going on here. And the implication is David is responding very well now. And Yahweh loves Solomon. In other words, Yahweh's not going to put Solomon to what? To death. He's not going to put him to death. All right. Wow, we're running out of time. Okay. We have one more big point that we need to cover. Okay. And then we will wrap up here. And that is the ignorance factor. The ignorance factor. Rebellion. uh, Ignorance of rebellion. Ignorance of being able to even respond in faith. That kind of a thing. Uh, We need to cover a little bit of that. You don't need to turn there because we're running out of time. But Deuteronomy 139. Deuteronomy 139 is a passage that has to come into this conversation at some point. And it describes there the people of Israel. And he's recounting for them how they wandered in the wilderness. And the Lord is basically waiting until the first generation dies off in the wilderness. That's the goal. <laughs> is to, to basically make sure that the whole first generation dies off except for Joshua and Caleb. And he says that your children, who you say, hey, they're going to be <clears throat> become the spoil of these nations in Canaan. I'm going to prove to you that they will inherit the the land and you won't. The first generation won't. But those who you said would become spoiled. And those who do not know good and evil. That's what it says. Who do not know good and evil. Which should hearken you back and is a tie back to Genesis chapter 2. The tree of the what? Knowledge of good and evil. What we're seeing here is terminology that connects infants to a somewhat, even though there is a sin nature, there is somewhat of a sense where they're connected to a pre-fall understanding of good and evil. Does that make sense? Where there is no really knowledge. And it doesn't mean like knowledge is in like facts and data, but more of the being able to understandably act out in good and Evil. That's how that knowledge is very likely being used. Another passage is Jonah chapter 4. This one's always a fun one. Jonah chapter 4 talks about God having pity on the people of Nineveh. God having pity on the people of Nineveh. And uh, specifically, he says, Shall I not have pity on Nineveh, the great city? in which there are in it, and it actually literally says, very much more than 120,000 people. Literally just says 120,000 man, but man can apply to like mankind. So it's, that's why it it's, could be referring to infants here. very likely is. Who do not know their what? Their right, right hand from their left hand. They cannot even make... And that's, that's, a, that's an idiom to describe several different things. Not only do they not know they're right from left, but it's the whole concept of being able to choose between what? Right and wrong. And being able to make critical decisions in life. And, I love this phrase at the end, why did they tack these words on the end of Jonah 4? Uh, at the end of the book. And very many what? Animals. Now, I'm going to argue here... <laughs> That there is a sense where infants 
and animals do not have a knowledge of good and evil in a very similar way. Animals have no concept and never will. But infants are kind of in that same state, and I would argue that that they are placed side by side on purpose to describe that. Not to say your children are animals. That's not what it's saying. (laughs) We don't want to go there. That's not what it's saying. The point is, is that it's comparing them at that level of knowledge of good and evil. Nehemiah chapter 8 also brings up the fact that men and women were brought before the reading of the law of Yahweh. You remember that? In the town square, and they're there all day, and they're to listen. And it says, men and women and those who are able to understand the law. Why does it say men and women? Doesn't that cover everybody? Men and women? And those who are able to understand the law. No, he's even splicing out the children for us. The children who can understand, but that what differentiates between the what? The children who can't understand. Which means, by implication, they're not yet held accountable to the reading of the law. Does that make sense? Okay, that's another point. Isaiah 7 brings this up. There's the, you know, the child, the Messiah, ultimately fulfilled in this Messiah, but there's a recapitulation event going on there uh, where th- there's a young maiden girl who's going to give birth to a child, and he's described, this child is described as someone who is un, uh, unable to choose to refuse evil and choose good. Unable to refuse evil and choose good. So that's described there. It's an important point. But the final thing that I need to bring up, and I know we're basically out of time time here, is Romans chapter 2. Turn your Bibles over to Romans chapter 2. Very, very important. Romans 2. This establishes what God holds people accountable to. This is such an important text. I go to this so often when I come to dealing with thinking in my own mind and dealing with Gentiles who want to use the excuse, I didn't know any better, and I didn't know the law, how can you say that? Or what about people who didn't know the Bible or didn't know the law? Chapter 2, verse 12, Romans 2, 12. For as many as sin without the law, now you could have that past tense there, but it's an aorist, and I think that we're talking axiomatically here again, so I would argue this is as many who sin without the law. In other words, they were not under the law. They sinned anyways, but they didn't have the law, and they weren't thinking about the law. They had no concept for that. They what? They will perish without the law. That sounds kind of harsh. Well, they're going to die anyways. No. The idea is they will perish without being held accountable to that law. Does that make sense? They will be held accountable to something else, but they will not be held accountable to that law. And as many as sin under the law, they will be what? Judged by the law. It's just proving God is fair and right in every way that He judges people. He's fair and right in all of it. For it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but it's the doers of the law who will be justified. Again, this is establishing before the gospel is even presented here. The whole point is you have to be perfect under the law in order to be saved. No one can be perfect. That's why he's going to introduce the gospel later. But then verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, they do the things of the law by nature. These who do not have the law, they are a law to themselves. And look at the phrase here in verse 15, who show what? The work of the law written on their hearts. And what has to testify? Their conscience has to testify in them. And I love the phrasing, and their thoughts alternately going back and forth between, in some cases, will what? Accuse them, and in some cases it will what? Defend them. There's a testimony there. 
Gentiles who have some kind of knowledge of good and evil will have to have some kind of accusation in their mind that on the day of judgment, there's going to be accusation against them from their own heads. And there's going to be defending. That's when, in verse 16, on the day when God will judge the secrets of men according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. You see that? It's, it's, it's the, he will judge those secrets. Now, this is what's really cool. That's what's happening there. In John 5.45, you don't need to turn over there, but John 5.45 gives us the example of the Jews and what will testify against them on that day. Jesus says, hey, I'm not going to get up and testify against you. Verse 45. Do not suppose that I will accuse you before the Father, the one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have put your hope. Moses is, really, the, the uh, facilitator of the law. It's the law that's going to accuse them. They put their hope in the law, and the law will turn against them on that day. In other words, everyone is going to have something in which they put their hope in on the day of judgment, and it will turn against them. God never will have to, even though He will, execute the judgment. God will never have to just be the sole witness of their sin. It is literally everyone is going to have that primary either conscience or law in which they put their hope. And therefore God is perfectly just to condemn anyone in sin. But what does that imply? Infants what? Do not have the capacity for thoughts of accusation in their own mind because they have no knowledge of what? Good and evil. I think I'm going to leave it there. I was going to talk a little bit about... Well, let me just say this. Um, sorry. It's, just, it's really important. I know we're late. But um, are infants then not covered by the blood of Christ? Because they don't have the opportunity to be justified by faith alone. That's an interesting question. And I would argue they are covered by the blood of Christ. But it's not necessarily... And this is where I tread really, really carefully. And I'm totally willing to talk about this and change my view on this if I see more on this, but um, Christ didn't just come to redeem humanity, did he? He came to redeem what? Creation. And therefore the blood applies to what? All of creation too. And in that sense, the blood can, can apply beyond just people believing in Christ. And so I would argue that infants are covered under the blood of Christ even so, because of their sin nature, right? There's culpability there. And so by ushering in even plants and animals and redeeming those, he is also redeeming all of those who had no f- true full knowledge of good and evil. Okay? That's where I would land. But I land there tentatively. Okay? All right. Um, we got to go. Let me pray. And then if you have any questions, feel free to come up afterwards. Father, thank you so much for this time. And Lord, we know that we have not been given an explicit mention in your word about what happens to the eternal destiny of infants. However, I love the fact that when we go in there, we see the heartbeat of God for infants. Um, that would seem quite misleading if there was a very different destiny for them than eternal care in your arms. And so, Lord, we thank you for that heartbeat that we can trust that you have. And, yeah, it might be that you have not explicitly mentioned this to us, what happens to them, so that we would not misuse and abuse that theology to get our children there quicker or more expediently. Lord, help us to be humble to your word. Ultimately, Lord, it rests 
in your hands, whatever the outcome. But we serve a very merciful and faithful God. Give us grace today as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you're dismissed. Thank you so much.